0: 15.
1: Respect all, fear none.
0: Into the upper deck. Intensity is not a perfume. Oh my goodness.
1: Five, four,
0: three, two, one. 1. From inside the warehouse at Oriel Park at Camden Yards, it is... The Masson All Access Podcast. Paul Mancano and Brendan Mortensen here with you, Brendan. As you can hear from my voice, I am sick. Yeah, this was you a couple of weeks ago. It is me now. I made a trip up to snowy Syracuse, and I came back with the Syracuse flu. That'll happen. It's not in a Syracuse
1: because you go up and it's about thirty degrees colder than anywhere else on the planet,
0: seemingly. Uh, yeah, and with an extra foot of snow, right? That you were not expecting. And, uh, I, I got it. I was on a panel when I was there flex. huge flex. That's you, a massive flex. A, absolutely massive flex. Uh, and, uh, I was on with a couple other people and I realized the, the ultimate faux pas that I never want to make that this poor woman made on the panel alongside me when she was talking about making a good impression in the industry. We're talking to students and how, you know, how you treat people is important. And, Right. If you, you know, show up and you're energized and you work hard as an intern, that'll go far. And she uh, said, was using that as a point. And then she said, like, you, I know you intern. She pointed to a student for NBC the one summer that I was there. And he said, me? She oh. said, and she said, yeah. And he said, that wasn't me. Oh, no. And she was using it as a point to say, I remembered you because you were great. That's brutal. And she clearly remembered the wrong person. That's I, just tough. I felt very bad. Uh, you just have to be so certain of something like that before yeah. you pull the trigger on it, because it's just all anybody thinks about. And then there, the, I would still be thinking about. I'm still thinking about it now, and it wasn't me. Ooh, yeah. Ooh. I'm I'm secondhand uncomfortable from hearing about right. that experience because then she had to pivot and was like, "Well, the the person that I was talking about, well, he was great." Oh. Yeah, it, it just kind of undermines your point. It's so not what you want. Anytime you're making a statement like that, you have to be so certain of it. Yeah. So, just something to keep in mind. That's tough. Yeah. Well, Brendan, on this podcast today, we're not going to be calling anybody out by name. I'm pretty sure all of our audience, can I say all of our No, I'm just, I'm not going to do something like that. Uh, I'm going to be discussing with you, Brendan, pitching prospects, for the most part. How the Orioles have developed those people. How they have turned them into quality pitchers in some instances. And so, in other instances, not so much. Yeah. Uh, but first, we need a spring training update from you, Brendan. That we do. Not too many things to update so far. Uh,
1: on the injury front, we have DL Hall, who is still ramping up a little bit. He will not be ready to pitch in spring training games until later this month. So that kind of seems like it takes him out of the competition for the Orioles' opening day rotation. Just kind of a bummer. I didn't think he was going to make the opening day rotation yeah. either way, but it still would have been fun. I think he could have given guys like Dean Kramer a run for his money. So D.L. Hall kind of out of that competition as of right now. It seems like, can't imagine the Orioles would throw him in the rotation after not really seeing him much during the spring. Presumably going to start in AAA as a starter,
0: assuming he won't start in the bullpen. That's what we've heard so far. And then Taryn Vavra, another injury. Was scratched from the lineup a couple days ago, but appears to be progressing. That a, appears to not be a serious injury, which is good because of how well Terran Bavar was playing prior to that injury.
1: Yeah, everybody keeps using the same pun of tearing it up. I mean, wouldn't he, he's you? he has been good. I did. I'd maybe use it once. I did. Yeah. Are you calling me out? Maybe. At Pullman Man. Not naming names. We just said off the top of the podcast we weren't going we to call people out. Yeah. Now,
0: now here I am breaking that rule already. Exactly. Uh, He was six for his first 11 in spring training. We were, prior to spring training, giving him the last roster spot on opening day, and so far nothing has changed. I mean, unless somebody goes down with injury, and opening day is three weeks from tomorrow, so there still is that possibility. And look at the way that Franchi Cordero and Lewin Diaz, they're hitting the ball very well, but again... Taron Vavra has the inside track because he can play second base, he can play in the outfield, he's learning first base, and he's already on the 40-man. Yeah, I think he maybe went up from the last roster
1: spot to the second-to-last roster spot.
0: Who goes to the last roster spot?
1: Ryan McKenna? Maybe Ryan McKenna? Maybe. I don't know. Taron Vavra's just been playing really well. I would be very surprised if he doesn't make the team.
0: Yeah, although, you know, it is spring training. Another exciting thing, Heston Kerstad. Yeah. This has been the spring of Heston Kerstad. Seven for his first 13 (laughs) with two homers. He is looking ready to go. Will this be the summer of Heston Kerstad? It could be. Did we say he was going to start in Aberdeen or Bowie on our last podcast? I think we said he was going to start in Bowie. Uh, Gonna go. have to go back and listen to that. I'm... 80% Eighty percent sure we said he was going to start in Bowie because he didn't hit particularly well in Aberdeen. Only hit those five homers. Right, it was only about sixty some games and hit about what two two 230? So we were kind of expecting even after that great Arizona Fall League that he might get some more time in Aberdeen. But I mean, how much can you put? How much stock can you put into thirteen spring training at bats? But. Boy, does he look good. Well, it's not just the spring training at-bats at this point. As you mentioned, he was
1: excellent in the Arizona Fall League. He was the best at the Arizona Fall League, one MVP there. And as the season went along in Aberdeen, he was trending in the right direction. He was hitting much better as the Ironbirds made the playoff push. He was improving a lot. So I wouldn't be surprised if it's not just the overall numbers that the Orioles are looking at from Aberdeen, but you look at the last few weeks he spent there, combine that with the Arizona Fall League and now a really impressive start to spring training, then that might warrant a start in Bowie. Yeah, maybe.
0: He's turning some heads. Who knows? We'll see. We'll see how much playing time he gets over the last couple weeks, especially because the Orioles have not cut anybody yet. They haven't optioned anybody to AAA. They haven't sent anybody to minor league camp. They have, what, 71 guys? In Major League camp right now, that is a ridiculous number. And it's awesome because we're still getting to see Connor Norby and Heston Kerstad and Joey Ortiz start games and Colton Cowser, who on Masson hit a three-run homer the other day. Right, We're still getting to see them playing in games. But it's just crazy that the Orioles are saying, all these guys are considered good enough so far for our big league team. We don't want to send anybody home.
1: Right, and especially those guys Not that home are at- to minor league camp. Right, and and the guys who are at the upper levels of the minor leagues right now, they might be able to get some more run with Cedric Mullins, yeah. now playing for Team USA at the World Baseball Classic. That opens up center field for Colton Cowser, who is getting a spot there today. Right, Anthony Santander just left for the World Baseball Classic. Maybe there's some more at-bats to be had there as well. So exciting to see those young guys
0: who are at the upper levels of the minor leagues get to face some big league competition. I do want to have the word of caution that it is just spring training, And the example I will use will be Yosniel Diaz, unfortunately, who was awesome every spring it felt like. He had four spring trainings with the Orioles, went 32 for 108 in those time frames, hit 296 with two homers, three triples, eight doubles. And I remember every spring being like, he's turning heads. Maybe he'll make the the team out of camp or, you know, start the year in AAA and get a quick call up. And every year it felt like he couldn't, Either injury or poor play. He couldn't get his feet under him. Guys, certain guys are just prone to flashing in spring training. And using yel Diaz was one of those guys. So all to say, take it with a grain of sand or a grain of salt or whatever grain you can find. A small grain. A small grain, not a large grain of wheat. Right. And uh, you are going to have the exact appro- approximation for how important these stats are. Yeah, Rocco wrote
1: on Massinsports.com the other day. Well, I think it was this morning, actually. Don't look into spring stats all that much. Don't look into September stats
0: all yeah. that much. Buck Showalter always used to say, right. don't don't count September stats. Right. So, yeah. Uh, but still good to see these guys are doing well. All right. It's better than the alternative. I'll say that, Brendan. Yeah. Uh, all right, Brendan. Let's talk about pitching prospects. Let's we do it. We kind of teased on our last podcast the discussion of looking back at Michael Elias's era so far 4 years in and seeing exactly how well the Orioles have done with developing the prospects that they have in their system and it's a complex conversation and it it has a lot of nuance and we're going to try to keep this under an hour because there are so many pitching prospects that we could talk about Uh, On both sides of the coin of guys that the Orioles have turned into quality prospects and quality players and guys that have just flamed out. And it's difficult to parse how much natural talent a guy has and how much the pitching staff, the Orioles player development staff, is able to squeeze out of a guy. It's always difficult to tell exactly. It's like looking at the impact of a manager. You know, how much... Is the team's natural talent? And how much is the impact that the development staff has on this guy? And
1: it's kind of hard to analyze the Elias regime right now, too, because a lot of the pitching prospects in the system at this point are guys that were brought in pre-Mike Elias. Even Grayson Rodriguez, D.L. Hall, guys that we have seen have success throughout the minor leagues and are hopefully going to have success at the big league level moving forward those are not guys that Mike Elias drafted. That was a previous regime that Mike Elias kind of inherited the responsibility of developing. So with a lot of the guys that we're going to talk about, you could make an argument of, well, those aren't really Mike Elias's guys. We don't know what Elias is going to do with guys that maybe not he handpicks, but the people around him are handpicking. I think you can make a case if we're starting with, you know, Grayson Rodriguez, who has had a ton of success in the minor league level and is hopefully going to be a successful big league pitcher, i think you can attribute a lot of his success to the Michael Elias regime because, you know, if you listen to how Grayson Rodriguez talks about the organization, how things have changed since Michael Elias and company got here, Grayson Rodriguez is a completely different pitcher than the pitcher that he was when he was drafted. Yeah. I mean, when he was drafted at a high school, he could pump a hundred mile an hour fastball and he could get outs that way. But when he started working with a pitching coach like Justin Ramsey in the minor leagues, he was able to develop a changeup, a pitch he never had before, which turned into arguably the best changeup throughout the minor leagues of any organization. Yeah. That's what made him an elite pitcher, his secondary stuff. And I think you can credit Mike Elias and the guys that he has brought in with helping to turn Grayson Rodriguez from a first-round pick with some promise to one of, if not the best pitching prospect in all of baseball,
0: and it's impossible for us to sit here and say, "Well, Grayson Rodriguez wouldn't have developed had Michael Elias never stepped in, had the Orioles just gone with the Dan Duquette era for the next the previous five years." It's impossible for us to say what would have happened, right? But what we can do is say the last regime didn't have a great track record of developing guys. And I think Orioles fans sometimes have some PTSD just because of how much the previous regime, the Dan Duquette, Buck Showalter era had, how much trouble they had in developing pitching prospects. And I think their inability to develop a lot of pitching prospects was what ultimately kind of doomed that era and slammed a window shut that seemed wide open for a long period of time. Now, the Orioles won the most games in the American League for over a five-year stretch, and it was almost entirely due to their lineup and their bullpen. They had Zach Britton and Darren O'Day and those guys in the bullpen locking it down, and they had an incredible lineup with Adam Jones and Chris Davis and Manny Machado and J.J. Hardy. The pitching, the starting pitching during that time frame, was typically between twenty and 30th. 20th and 30th in Major League Baseball. The highest they ever got, starting pitching ERA, was 12th in 2014. It was never the strength of that team. So what did that regime do? They went out and they tried to draft and develop pitchers. We saw it with Dylan Bundy, with Kevin Gossman, high first-round picks. Hunter Harvey was another first-round pick, not drafted as high. Taking three pitchers right there that they thought could be pieces of their starting rotation for years to come. And for one reason or another, Bundy and Har- Harvey more to injury, Gosman more to lack of development, they didn't pan out. And it was the failure of those three prospects, I think, that helped hasten the downfall of the Dan Duquette era. And then near the back end of it, it was three more pitching prospects that were drafted near the end of Dan Duquette's era when they realized, again, we have to reinvest in pitching. So it was guys like Cody Sedlock and D.L. Hall and Grayson Rodriguez, guys that they realized we're going to have to draft some pitchers in order to back up some of the great hitters that we have right now. And it's a shame that that era wasn't able to see what D.L. Hall and Grayson Rodriguez can deliver because they appear to have been good picks. Cody Sedlock was not. But it's just crazy to see that the last era was doomed by pitching prospects and the, the failure of the Orioles, to develop those pitching prospects. And I think Orioles fans are concerned that this era of Orioles teams, which is set to be loaded lineup-wise with Adley Rutschman and Gunnar Henderson and future guys like Jackson Holiday, they're worried that this team could be undone by similar things. And we could see panic signings like we saw with Alex Cobb and Andrew Kashner near the end, when things weren't going as well and they needed to patch holes.
1: And it's interesting
0: that Mike Elias hasn't really had to draft pitchers
1: in a similar way that Dan Duquette had to. You mentioned kind of correcting for errors there with guys like Grayson Rodriguez and D.L. Hall. The Orioles were able to go in to their very high draft picks with the idea of, okay, we already have Grayson Rodriguez and D.L. Hall. Those are the two guys at the top of the farm system right now. And that gave the Orioles the flexibility to be able to draft Adley Rutschman number one overall. Take Heston Kerstad number two, Colton Couser number five, Jackson Holiday number one. Mike Elias has not had to use a first round pick on a pitcher. Now, whether that's completely by design because of the fact that maybe it's just a little harder to draft pitchers than it is to draft hitters. We've talked about it on previous draft podcasts here we have mentioned how the Orioles have made it seem like we are more confident in drafting hitters in the first three or four rounds of the draft, drafting some pitching projects after that, and then acquiring pitchers, whether it's through trades or waiver claims or signings, whatever it may be, that seems to be the Orioles' preferred route. But if you don't have Grayson Rodriguez and D.L. Hall from the Dan Duquette era, then Michael Elias doesn't have the flexibility to keep drafting hitters in the top five. And that's what he did for four years in a row, which worked out really well. And as you mentioned, the Orioles are going to be stacked in their lineup if these hitting prospects turn out. But are they going to be doomed if Grayson Rodriguez is the only pitching
0: prospect from this farm system that turns out to be what the Orioles need him to be? Yeah, because when Mike Elias took over, it wasn't just Grayson Rodriguez and D.L. Hall, that we were talking about. If you remember, the the Orioles' top 30 prospect list, and in particular, their top 15 was about half pitchers. Yeah. Right now, you look at the Orioles' top 30, and especially the top 10, there are only a couple guys in there, Grayson Rodriguez and D.L. Hall, that are considered top pitching prospects in the Orioles' system. And I look at guys like Zach Lowther, Alexander Wells, somebody that he acquired later on, Kevin Smith, Mike Bauman was already in the system. Keegan Aiken was already in the system. You had what you thought was, what we thought from the outside, was a little bit of depth and a little bit of cushion. And the problem is, while we have seen the meteoric rise of Grayson Rodriguez and we've seen the strong development, we'll talk about him later, of D.L. Hall, it's the cushion that we've seen removed. It's the second tier of pitching prospects that we thought might turn into quality rotation pieces, pitching depth that we have seen kind of bottom out. Yeah. When you look at the Orioles top 30 prospects
1: in 2019, as you mentioned uh, just a few years ago, you've got DL Hall and Grayson Rodriguez, both in your top five. Yep. Outside of those two, it's Zach Lowther, number eight, Dean Kramer, number nine, Blaine Knight, number 10, Brennan Hannafee, number 11, and Hunter Harvey, number 12. Do you mention Keegan Aiken, number 6, too? Yeah, Keegan Aiken in there as well. I didn't even mention him. Yeah. None of those guys are Elias draft picks. None of those guys, you know, Dean Kramer was acquired in a trade. That wasn't a Mike Elias trade. And you can look right now. We're going to talk about Lowther Wells, Smith, Bauman. I'm going to get to that group of four in just a second. They... Are able to not succeed because you have right now at least Kyle Bradish and Dean Kramer. Neither of those guys were acquired by Mike Elias. Kyle Bradish was a part of the Dylan Bundy trade. Dean Kramer was a part of the Manny Machado trade, and both of those guys were able to develop in the minor leagues. That's great, but you got them at the upper levels of the minor leagues. Right. We saw Kyle Bradish move very quickly throughout the Orioles system, and yes, he was good at AAA. And yes, he's now been solid for a year at the majors with a lot of promise, but the early stages of Kyle Bradish's development didn't happen in Baltimore. No. Same case with Dean Kramer. He moved up through the Orioles system pretty quickly. And when you're looking at guys like Zach Lowther, Alexander Wells, Mike Bauman, Kevin Smith to an extent who was lower down in the Mets system before the Orioles acquired him, the Orioles were not able to develop those guys. And We talked at length over the last few years on this podcast about how even if one of those guys turns into a starting rotation piece, you'd feel pretty good about that. None of them did. And you could add Dean Kramer and Keegan Aiken into that jumble if you wanted to and say, hey, well, Dean Kramer turned into uh, hopefully a solid starter at the big league level. Keegan Aiken is a solid long reliever. I wouldn't really put those two in that group. I mean, maybe you could put Keegan Aiken there because the Orioles were able to develop him, but he didn't even turn into a starter. Yeah. So now we're just talking about a group of guys who were not first-round picks, who didn't have the huge high-end pedigree of being a front-end starter. You just needed them to be a back-end of the rotation starter, and none of them
0: were. Let's start with the pair of lefties that I think were grouped together so often in their minor league career, and that's Zach Lowther and Alexander Wells. Lowther's now 27. He's still in the Orioles' system he was not a non-roster invitee to spring training, but he is an extra guy who can get work in exhibition games because he makes the trip with the team. He was a 2017 second round pick by the Dan Duquette era. He peaked at number 12 in the Orioles top 30 back in 2021. He made his big league debut in 2021, had six starts, six seven, six, six, seven, I should say, ERA, high strikeout rate, but was walking almost four per nine. Not a good rookie year. 2022, last year, pitched in just one big league game, allowed five earned runs, and more troubling than that, he uh, had an ERA over 10 in AAA last year. He was removed from the 40-man roster for Jonathan Arauz in mid-June and cleared waivers and remained in the Orioles' system. Alexander Wells, international signee, peaked at number 15 in the Orioles' top 30 back in 2020. Made his Major League debut in 2021 as well. six seven five ERA in 11 games. And then last year, pitched in just two games and allowed two earned, earned runs. And w- really struggled with injuries last year. Pitched in just 11 and a third innings in Norfolk. And then filed for free agency this past November. Two guys who are now not part of the Orioles' long-term plans by any stretch. One is out of the organization. Two guys that, look, they were mid-tier prospects. Your 12th-ranked prospect, your 15th-ranked prospects, you shouldn't have huge expectations for. But you were hoping one of those two guys would pan out, and neither did. Both
1: crafty lefties who didn't really have overwhelming stuff. You weren't going to see fastballs from either of them get over 94, 95 miles an hour. Their spin rates were both pretty good. There were encouraging signs there. They had solid off-speed stuff. You thought that... They didn't really have front end of the rotation potential again, but maybe they could have been a number four, number five starter in the big leagues. Even if it wasn't a huge big league career with tons of success, you thought that they would turn into something at the big league level. But they both continued a trend that we have seen from Orioles pitching prospects, which is you're solid at single A, solid at double A, get to triple A, uh uh-oh, something (laughs) happens at triple A, And those pitching prospects just hit a wall. And I understand that between every level of the minor leagues, there is a natural talent jump. It's a lot harder to pitch in double A than it is to pitch in single A. And it's a lot harder to pitch at triple A Norfolk than it is to pitch at double A Bowie. But both of these guys seem to hit the same brick wall that a lot of Orioles' pitching prospects have hit at triple A Norfolk, which is pretty concerning. And You can make an argument with both of those guys that, hey, they never really got into a consistent rhythm at the big league level. They didn't know whether they were going to be starting games or coming out of the bullpen. That's really hard to do when you're pitching sporadically against big league hitters. And I understand that argument, but on the flip side of that coin, they never did anything at AAA to say, hey, this guy deserves a shot every five days. Kyle Bradish did it last year. He was excellent at AAA Norfolk to start the year to the point where the Orioles said, this guy needs a shot every five days. We're going to let him work through those rookie struggles a little bit because we can see the potential on the other side. He has nothing left to show us at AAA Norfolk. We think he can be a big league rotation piece. Go work it out every five days because that is what Kyle Bradish needs for his long-term development. Zach Lowther and Alexander Wells, they didn't
0: show you enough to say, this guy needs a shot every five days. Yeah, and same with Mike Bauman, who was not a crafty lefty. He was a big, strong righty, still in the Orioles system, and I think could be could get some opportunities with the big league team this year, potentially, but certainly the Orioles don't have the same long-term vision for Mike Bauman that certainly we thought that they did maybe a year ago. And it's the same story, Brendan. Gets to AAA, and in 2021 he got to AAA, and he was great in six starts, not so much last year. A 420 ERA last year with Norfolk, bounced back and forth between Baltimore and Norfolk, but was never relied upon hugely in Baltimore. 13 games and had a 472 ERA. He's entering his age 27 season now. A, a guy that peaked higher than Lowther and Wells in the Orioles top 30. I know that's an external rating system, but he got all the way up to number eight in the Orioles top 10 and another guy that right now I think it's safe to say is not a part of the Orioles' long-term plans. No, I don't think he is a realistic part of this rotation competition right now.
1: I mean, Michael Elias has said that there's about 12 guys who are theoretically competing for a starting rotation spot at this point. Mike Bauman is probably within those 12, but when you talk about the seven or eight guys that are realistically in this Orioles starting pitching rotation competition I don't think Mike Bauman is even really in the group of Spencer Watkins right now I wouldn't put him in the same tier as Spencer Watkins and Austin Voth. right when you're looking at the starting rotation both of those guys started games really effectively last year I think Mike Bauman still has a chance to make the big league bullpen I think if you need another long reliever right-handed pitcher then yeah maybe Mike Bauman gets a call from AAA Norfolk But I'd be pretty surprised if he cracks the 26-man roster right now.
0: Yeah, and then Keegan Aiken, somebody who is a little bit more a part of the Orioles' plans than the three guys that we just talked about, than Wells, than Lowther, than Bauman, because he has established himself now seemingly as a quality lefty reliever. Probably more of a long reliever than any kind of high leverage guy, but that's still a valuable spot to be in. Remember, he was somebody who was drafted highly by the Dan Duquette era. Somebody who, again, doesn't have outrageous stuff, but has a great spin rate on his four-seam fastball. And I think we will see him in the big league bullpen this year because he had an ERA of 320 last year in the big leagues. He is on the upper echelon, on the higher end of the curve of pitching prospects who the Orioles have been able to develop. Right. Still, he is not a big league starter. And he's not a big league high leverage reliever. Yeah. And that's just it. If you want to
1: say, well, Keegan Aiken is a success story out of that group. Is he? I mean, he's at the big league level. He's pitching pretty well out of the bullpen. And you're happy about that. You're happy that you have a solid left-handed long reliever. But that's not really what you wanted Keegan Aiken to be. You were hoping that he would be a number four, number five starter at the big league level. And maybe the long reliever wasn't the floor. The floor is probably where Zach Lowther and Alexander Wells are right now, which is probably not any sort of a part of the big league level going forward. So Keegan
0: Aiken didn't hit his floor, but he didn't hit his ceiling. Right. He's probably in the 40th percentile in terms of outcome. Yeah. It's not the worst case scenario, but it's
1: certainly not what you were hoping for.
0: And so those four guys, Lowther, Wells, Bauman, and Aiken. like you said, Brendan... Mike Elias and company didn't pick these guys. He didn't bring these guys into the organization. Even Drew Rahm, who we expect maybe could make his big league debut this season, predated Mike Elias in this organization. So you could say, when looking at Mike Elias and this front office, that maybe these guys were not great prospects to begin with. And that Elias, given how he values, the kind of things that he values when he looks at prospects, draft prospects, guys to get back in trades, that he wouldn't have picked them in the first place. Right. And so the front office and the development staff have just been able to squeeze out as much as they possibly can out of guys that didn't have particularly high ceilings to begin with. That's an optimist view, I think you could say.
1: Yeah, I would agree. And good question from Mark on YouTube that I want to address here. Can you talk about some of the development philosophy differences between the Duquette era and the Elias era, We don't know a ton of the intricacies, but from what we have heard from guys like Grayson Rodriguez, who was a part of those two different regimes, it seemed like when Grayson first got here, the philosophy was a lot of just kind of old-school mentality to pitching. It was, hey, Grayson Rodriguez, you have a 100-mile-an-hour fastball. Go use that thing a lot. Use it effectively. And then you know, you were just kind of approaching hitters with either an overpowering stuff that we saw from Grayson Rodriguez and D.L. Hall or some of the guys that they were drafting, like Zach Lowther, the international signing of Alexander Wells. Those were kind of traditional crafty lefties. It it was a lot of an old-school approach to pitching, whereas, you know, Grayson Rodriguez has mentioned himself that with the Michael Ayes era, he came in the next year, and as soon as he got there, there were trackmans. There was technology going into Tracking a lot of the analytical data behind their pitching routine, it was giving them a lot of data to support what pitches work when, what you should be doing with your approach, changing mechanics, whatever it might be. We've seen new pitching labs get implemented. So it seems like in terms of developing pitching, the Mike Elias regime has used a lot more kind of current age technology with developing their pitchers and and bringing more information
0: to them that they're able to use on the mound. Yeah, it's tough to give a one size fits all answer here. And I think that's a common question that we get from a lot of people. It's like, what does this front office, what does this development staff emphasize? Do they want pitchers to throw more fastballs? Do they want pitchers to work out of the stretch more? There's no one size fits all answer here. They're just doing the best things for each individual pitcher. But they have a a more of a wealth of knowledge about what works for these kind of pitchers and what they can do. Like the pitching lab that you mentioned that Matt Blood talked about on this podcast that they are developing in Bel Air. That's something that Dylan Tate has talked about working at pitching labs. Spencer Watkins has worked at pitching, pitching labs. Right. These are things that the Orioles are working on the, internally and they're encouraging players to go out and do outside of the organization, the Wake Forest Pitching Lab that they took all the pitching prospects to after they drafted them in 2021. That kind of stuff would never have happened under Dan Duquette and that front office. Now, I think what Grayson Rodriguez experienced was the lower levels of the minor leagues. I mean, Grayson Rodriguez was with this organization with under Dan Duquette for only a matter of months before it changed hands, and he saw a different side of things. So, right. I think what Michael Elias and staff are doing very well is incorporating all of this technology and all of these development techniques, even at the lower levels, even in Aberdeen, even down to Delmarva and the Florida Complex League. I think the previous regime didn't do that. Maybe they had a little bit more technology. Maybe Grayson, if he had gotten up to AAA under Dan Duquette, would have seen more of that stuff. But that previous regime clearly didn't think it was as important to introduce that kind of technology, make an investment in that kind of technology at the lower levels. Yeah, I guess the blanket statement would just kind of
1: be giving pitchers and coaches the necessary information to know what best works yeah. for pitchers. Right. You're using the proper tools and technology, giving them the data to be able to succeed. And it's, it's very individualized, as you mentioned, so you can't really say what pitchers are doing more or less of on an organizational scale, right, but it is on an individual
0: level, giving them the information they need to succeed. So we talked about four guys that were brought in by the previous regime that Mike Elias and company have not so far been able to develop as much as some of the other top-tier pitching prospects. One guy that they brought in that Mike Elias was here for, the introduction of, and that was Kevin Smith. Yeah, entering his age 26 season. Now, he was acquired in the Miguel Castro trade. We incorrectly said in the last podcast it was one-for-one. One. I incorrectly said that. Uh, Victor Gonzalez, who was a recent international signee, was also part yeah, of Yeah, I think it was Kevin Smith and a player to be named later. Yeah, or Cash, I think, was that. Yeah. And that turned into a player to be named later. So, uh, Kevin Smith was brought in by this regime and came in at number 12 in the Orioles' top 30 prospect list. We were praising the trade at the time because of the high tier of prospect that Kevin Smith is. And in 2021, he struggled in Norfolk. 623 ERA in 16 games. And then last year, had a 466 ERA in 19 games, six starts in Norfolk. Struggled with injury. Was all over the map. And I know command has been a big issue with him. And it appears that Kevin Smith right now, he's dropped out of the Orioles' top 30. And we're very unsure about the long-term status of this guy in this organization. Yeah, it kind of got
1: to the point last year where we didn't really know what was going on yeah. with Kevin Smith. I th- I think it was the end of last year where he was in Bowie working with the pitching coaches, but he wasn't actually pitching in games. Like, you would just see him warming up, but he wasn't actually getting any game action. Yeah. So uh, Kevin Smith went from a pitching prospect that we were really excited about to – we don't even really know where he is in the minor league system. And, you know, it, Kevin Smith, I think, is the highest profile pitcher that Michael Elias has brought in. If you remember, too, in the Jose Iglesias trade as well, Michael Elias brought in two pitchers there. Brings in Garrett Stallings, who was very briefly in the Orioles' top 30. I think he was, like, literally 30th. Yeah. So he was kind of there. Garrett Stallings has not put up very good numbers in the minor league system. Gene Pinto kind of seems like the better pitcher. Of that trade, Gene Pinto was an international signing by the Angels who was kind of the throw-in along with Garrett Stallings in that deal. He looks pretty good, but scouts and, you know, Steve Molesky has talked about Pinto a lot where he's very short. He doesn't really have the tools, you would say, to be a big league type of pitcher. So he's put up good minor league numbers, and, you know, we've seen shorter pitchers just kind of surprise you in the big league level, but I don't know if Gene Pinto has big league potential yeah, at I mean, this point
0: he's he was very good in Aberdeen last year but i think in his age 22 or 23 season yeah so he's a little bit he's got to catch up a right. little bit so those are guys that the Orioles brought in that have had middling success to not so great success and i think this is goes into what michael Elias's philosophy is which is that pitching pros, pitching is in general, very hard to develop, and it's very hard to identify. And so the reason that they take these high draft picks and they use them on position player prospects is because they like the more sure thing of position player prospects. Right. They wait until the later rounds to take Carlos Tavera like they did in the fifth round a couple years ago. They wait until the later rounds. I think it was in the third round last year uh, where they took the two-way player who ended up not signing of Oregon state. They wait because they believe they would rather use the high dollar amount picks on guys that they are pretty sure will work out and they will wait until later for the pitching prospects. The right. problem is though, does that limit your ability to acquire top tier pitching prospects period? Grayson Rodriguez and DL hall, were middle first-round picks, but they were first-round picks. The Orioles, under Michael Elias, haven't spent any first-round picks on pitchers. They may not be able to acquire somebody who immediately jumps into their top 10 in terms of their prospect list for the near future, for a yep. long time. They haven't so far. And they will they even be able to? Because now they're going to be picking 17th in this draft. If all things go to plan, they're going to be picking 17th or later. They're going to be at least picking in the middle part. They're not going to be getting a top top pick in the draft unless the lottery balls bounce their way for some reason. Now they have the lottery. So are they even going to be able to acquire these guys? And unless they sell off one of their top-tier players, they're not going to be able to acquire a top-tier pitching prospect via trade. They're going to have to rely on developing these guys. They're going to have to rely on drafting guys in the 5th, 6th, 7th round and then turning them into something that is way better than their draft stock.
1: Yeah, we we've been talking about Zach Lowther, Alexander Wells, you know, Mike Bauman for the last half hour or so. It, I think the natural question from that is, so? So these guys didn't work out. right? It, it doesn't really seem to be making a huge impact on the big league level right now, right? Because you have five guys right now in your starting rotation with Kyle Gibson, Cole Irvin, who you acquired. You have Grayson Rodriguez, who is a top flight pitching prospect that Michael Elias didn't need to worry about drafting. So yeah. he is presumably in the rotation. And then you have Dean Kramer and Kyle Bradish, two guys who were acquired via trade before Michael Elias even got here and the Orioles were able to develop them. And now they look like they're in the starting rotation. So so what? Zach Lauder and Alexander Wells, Mike Bauman don't work out, who cares? But I think the issue with that is not those guys. It is the issue that they represent. As you mentioned, which is the Orioles are not clearly have not drafted, have not felt comfortable drafting pitchers in the first few rounds. And we aren't really going to see any pitchers come up throughout the minor league levels that the Orioles drafted that are super exciting. I mean, what you have guys like Carlos Tavera, who you know, is maybe a an exciting pitching prospect, but he's not in the top 30. He's not in their top 30. He was, what, a fifth or sixth round pick? Fifth round pick, I believe, yeah. So Carlos Tavera is kind of the pitching prospect from an Orioles draft class that we're talking about. And if I am looking at evaluating what Michael Elias is able to do with guys that he has either drafted or acquired in some way and how he can develop them, it's the group of Cade Povich, Chase McDermott, Seth Johnson, yeah, that is kind of to me the new Lowther Wells Bowman. Except he did acquire them. Except you can't make a case anymore that well Zach Lowther didn't work out because he wasn't a Michael Elias guy. Yeah, Alexander Wells not a Michael Elias guy. All three of these guys Michael Elias acquired via trade. He bought the ingredients right. So if Cade Povich, Chase McDermott, Seth Johnson don't work out, I mean. Maybe you could fall back on an argument again of, well, they weren't Michael Ias draft picks. And then you could just continue that cycle over and over. But at this point, the guys that Michael Ias has brought in, they are hand picking these guys right now. Yeah. So if Cade Povich, Chase McDermott, Seth Johnson, if none of those guys turn into a big league starting pitcher, then you really have to look at how this front office is able to acquire and develop pitching prospects. Because the onus does not fall on Dan Duquette anymore. Yeah. That's all Michael Elias.
0: It is strange, too, because the Orioles have done such a good job in taking guys who were already at the big league level and had failures elsewhere and turning them into quality pitchers. Austin Voth being the prime example of somebody who struggled mightily in Washington, Orioles pick him up off waiver claims in his age 29 season and turn him into a quality pitcher who might be in the bullpen, might be a reliever this year. Spencer Watkins, Mike Brandon Hyde said the other day, more credit needs to be thrown at Spencer Watkins for everything he did for this team last year. Yeah. As a spot starter, a fill-in starter. Somebody who, again, is up there in age. He's no longer a 25-year-old. He's closer to 30, and yet he filled in... He bounced around from team to team. The Orioles pick him up on a minor league deal and are able to get some quality innings out of him. The weird thing is they're able to do this well with guys that have failures elsewhere in the big leagues and get them in. It's the guys that they get at the lower levels. It's the guys that they get in the minor leagues that they can't quite push over the hump. Right. And honestly, if I'm looking at Povich,
1: McDermott, Johnson... If one of those guys a few years just down the line doesn't turn into a big league starting pitcher, I think I have major questions about the Orioles' ability to acquire and develop pitching prospects. If they are going to continue to draft hitters in the first few rounds, that's fine. It's a strategy that has seemed to work out so far because you've been able to draft guys even outside of the first round. Gunnar Henderson was not a top pick. He is still obviously turned into something great. He's the number one prospect in all of baseball right now. Jordan Westberg, guys that weren't drafted.
0: 30th 30th overall pick.
1: 30th overall pick. Joey Ortiz was a fourth round pick. You have a lot of guys. Kyle Stowers. Kyle Stowers, second round pick. They have been able to draft guys outside of the first round as hitters that they have developed into quality and hopefully good big league pieces for years down the line. They have yet to do that with a pitcher. Right. And right now they're getting by because you have Grayson Rodriguez, you have D.L. Hall, you have Bradish and Kramer that you acquired via trade. That's four guys that Michael Elias did not bring in. And it kind of leaves you in a position where you need to sign Kyle Gibson in free agency because you don't have the talent in-house at the front end of the rotation. You need to trade for somebody like Cole Irvin, take away from your minor league depth, and go get somebody like that. And maybe that's easier to do. Yeah, Maybe it's easier to draft a hitter like Daryl Hernays out of high school, develop him, turn him into a top 15 prospect that you can then flip for a solid big league arm that has already developed throughout his respective minor league system. You don't have to worry about getting him to that point. Maybe that's just easier. And maybe that's the philosophy that this front
0: office has. But you'd still like to see them draft and develop a pitcher. I think going forward it's going to be interesting to see now that they are picking 17th in the draft, are they going to start to use these mid to late first-round picks that they might have for the next several years on pitchers? Now that they have, they're out of the phase, hopefully, of drafting in the top five, are they going to change their philosophy and say, we're going to take bigger swings on pitching now because we got the foundational pieces we needed out of those drafts? That's going to be an interesting thing to see. And again, like you said, Brendan, so what? You know, can the Orioles continue to get by like this? This may not be an issue. If the Orioles play their cards right and they use all the depth that they have position player-wise in their system to trade for pitchers, maybe this is okay. Maybe this is much ado about nothing and we're talking about something that isn't an issue Because the Orioles have so much depth elsewhere that they are able to trade for guys. Because they push the left field wall back, that they are able to sign pitchers a little bit better, a little bit cheaper for longer term. But it could also be an issue. And I think what fans are concerned about long-term, I don't know how many fans are concerned about this, but the long-term concern could be, could we get to another phase where we're going out and overpaying for Alex Cobb and Andrew Kashner to fill holes in our rotation because we're so desperate at this point. Yeah,
1: it's a good point of, do you even have to? Could you just keep drafting hitters that you develop really well and trade them for big league rotation pieces? And you don't have to ever draft a pitcher because you're just trading the depth that you have from your hitters, trading for guys, or you're just signing pitchers in free agency because you don't have to sign hitters because you've just developed all of them throughout your minor league system. And you don't have any holes in the lineup and you can just spend your money in free agency on starting pitchers and then you're good to go. But the question there becomes, what does your minor league system look like? What does the minor league system look like right now as we are entering the phase where the Orioles are not going to be trading quality veteran position players at the big league level? We presume. We don't think they're going to be offloading talented players for prospects at this point because they're trying to make a playoff push down the line. What does this farm system look like, or even the top 30 look like right now, if you don't trade Trey Mancini and Jorge Lopez last year? That's no Povich, no McDermott, no Johnson. Which means you have Grayson Rodriguez and D.L. Hall in your top 30, and then a long way down the list, you have Drew Rahm, who you also did not draft. And then that's pretty much it. Well, then we should give credit to Elias
0: for making those trades
1: as well. And that's great. But it's just interesting to look at the fact that you only have kind of the middle tier of pitchers in your top 30 prospects right now because you traded veterans last year, which you're not going to do. Right. So that strategy is kind of gone. Yeah. The way that you acquired Povich and McDermott and Seth Johnson, that's not a viable strategy
0: no. anymore. So the litmus test truly is going to be those three guys. Right. I mean, it has to be. And and the other interesting one that we haven't really talked about is D.L. Hall. I mean, Grayson Rodriguez is, you know, everything that the Orioles hoped he would be, and he has been an A-plus in terms of development thus far. We'll see what how he translates to the big leagues. The Orioles have done a, an incredible job developing Grayson Rodriguez from a mid-first-round pick into one of the best pitching prospects in baseball and potentially a future ace. D.L. Hall, at one point, was higher than Grayson Rodriguez in the Orioles' prospect rankings. We still say has a ton of potential. Are the Orioles able to squeeze that potential out of him and turn him into a viable big leaguer long-term? I don't think we'll get our answer this year, but maybe next year and the year after that, D.L. Hall is going to be another interesting test to see how well can the Orioles do with a guy like this. And here's my follow-up to that. Don't they kind of have to? They, uh, right? Like, I mean, you have Grayson Rodriguez. Because, who, the because wow, there were Wells, right? Bauman, those guys didn't work out. D.L. Hall kind of has to succeed.
1: You have Grayson Rodriguez, who has front end of the rotation potential. After Grayson Rodriguez, you have Kyle Bradish, who we both really like, but... I don't think Kyle Bradish is going to be an ace. Not that you necessarily need him to be if Grayson Rodriguez turns into one. But I don't know if Kyle Bradish's ceiling is much higher than a number three starter at the big league level. I don't think Dean Kramer's ceiling is much higher than a number four, number five starter at the big league level. So I know it doesn't always work like that. Sometimes you just have a jumble of starters. It doesn't need to be one is better than two, two is better than three, and so on. But you need a few guys, especially if you are looking at a potential playoff rotation. You need a few guys who you feel really confident going out for a playoff start that can just have an absolute gem, right? Maybe Kyle Bradish can do it. He's inconsistent. Maybe Dean Kramer can give you one every once in a while. But you need the type of pitcher that we think Grayson Rodriguez can be. Grayson Rodriguez is really the only one that the Orioles have right now with that kind of potential. Yeah. D.L. Hall, I think, is the only other one that you could make a case for but he hasn't shown it enough over the last few years. I know he's dealt with injuries, and we haven't really seen D.L. Hall at full strength. He looked excellent at the back end of last year, coming out of the bullpen. But he kind of needs to be that number two or number three type of starter because the Orioles don't really have it anywhere else. And you can acquire those guys via trade. You can sign them in free agency. But you'd like to have them in-house if you can.
0: The one thing we can say is... Uh, the previous regime also had the negative aspect of they would deal guys away or lose guys pitchers that would end up having great careers elsewhere. Jake Arietta being the prime example. Kevin Gossman. Kevin Gossman, who sometimes incorrectly by fans, I understand it can get confusing, gets attributed to Michael Elias. Some people say kept, you know, Michael Elias traded away. Kevin Gossman. Yeah, that happened before Michael Elias took over. And also, we forget that Kevin Gossman struggled in Atlanta before he eventually found his feet. He did. Alex Cobb is the only guy I think you could say struggled in Baltimore and had a better career elsewhere. Dylan Bundy had like a solid year after, a, but he has really fallen off since. It was 11 games in 2020. Yeah, uh, I'm kind of willing to... And clearly, yeah. I mean, he's still out in the free agency market right now. But Cobb, remember, struggled in Baltimore in Elias's first year. And then... Uh, had a three seven six ERA in twenty twenty one and a three seven three ERA last year, so turned into a pretty good pitcher. Yeah,
1: in one of the better hitters' parks, or excuse me, one of the better pitchers' parks in all of
0: baseball as well in San Francisco. So, you yeah. know, but yes, I agree. Yeah. Uh, other than that, I mean, you know, give all the credit in the world to Evan Phillips, who had a phenomenal yeah, awesome year last, last year, year with the Dodgers one one four ERA. But he also had a brief stint in Tampa Bay last year. Th- this happens. Zach like Pop. Zach Pop as well, who, again, though, I don't think the Orioles willingly gave him away. I think they thought Zach Pop was not going to get taken in the Rule 5 draft. Yeah, but he's been very good. He has. They they probably, I think if Michael Elias had a do-over, would say, I would have protected him from the Rule 5 draft. If they got one takesies-backsies. Takesies-backsies. He would be a takesies-backsies. Uh, I think it would be Mikey Strumski, probably. Uh, I don't know. Yeah, probably. Yeah, uh, so there are a couple instances, but also every team has instances of that. Every team yep. has, they traded away, you know, Fernando Tatis Jr. when he was just a prospect. So stuff like that happens to even the best of organizations. And Michael Ayes doesn't have too many examples right now of trading away pitching prospects who or pitchers who then turn out to be phenomenal elsewhere.
1: No, even Jorge Lopez struggled yeah. in the second half of last year in Minnesota. Obviously, you know, wish the best for Jorge Lopez, but... That trade right now seems pretty good. Tanner Scott, Cole Solser, as Both well. struggled in Miami. Exactly. There was, I, I think it, at some podcasts, Paul, will we'll go back and now we can finally start evaluating some of the early Michael Elias trades that he has made. We can't really evaluate, you know, the Trey Mancini, Jorge Lopez trades at no. this point because those guys are still in the minor leagues. But you can look at trades like Cole Solcer and Tanner Scott, even for what the Orioles got back in the minor league system right now and what both of those guys have done so far.
0: Pretty good trade. They got the draft pick that turned into, was it Judd Fabian? Judd Fabian. So that was a weird draft pick trade, which doesn't often happen. Yeah. But you can trade those competitive balance round picks. Anyway, all right, Brendan. (laughs) We've talked a lot about the pitching prospects, and there still is a lot to be written uh, on those pitching prospects. And I think this year will be a, a very important year for the pitching prospects in the Orioles system that Michael Ice has acquired, and also for some of the guys at the big league level that we've seen the Orioles pin their hopes upon.
1: Yeah, this was a very inside baseball podcast, so thanks for sticking with us. But my takeaway from this is that you can make arguments about Lowther, Wells, Bauman not necessarily being this front office's guys. So I think the microscope is really going to be on Cade Povich, Chase McDermott, yep. and Seth Johnson whenever he's able to return to the mound. Not really sure what his timetable looks like recovering from Tommy John. Probably on a John Means-esque sort of timeline where yep. maybe we'll see him back in July or August. But those three guys, you you can't really make any excuses for. Right, Mike Elias brought them in. He now has the task of developing them. They have all... From scouts around baseball. I mean, Cade especially has gotten pretty high marks. He's been on some top 100 lists. So is Michael Elias and his regime able to develop their own pitching prospects? And their own is even a loose term yeah. because they acquired them via trade. But this is about
0: as close to their own guys as we're going to get. And Carlos Tavera and their draft picks. Right. Th- those guys as well. You can lump into that category. And if they do develop them well... We'll have Matt Blood on, again, to take a victory lap. And yeah? just to... A well-deserved
1: one. Because Ex- if the exactly. Orioles
0: are able to develop some of their pitching draft picks, I mean, that's a huge win. It because is. Because they
1: hardly draft those guys in the first five rounds.
0: Exactly. Well, important couple years coming up for the pitching prospects and the Orioles pitching depth. At Brendan Morty is his Twitter handle. I am at Paul Mancano. Thanks so much to Amy Jennings for producing this podcast. Three weeks from tomorrow. Ooh opening day get your sleep in now yeah because it's it's not gonna be easy hopefully i sound a lot better on the next podcast a lot less nasally yeah one can only hope thanks so much for tuning in uh and uh we will be back next week and we'll catch you next time